Welcome to 1001 Heroes, everyone. It's Veterans Day today, November 11th, 2022. And I'm holding a book in my hands right now titled Across the Fence, The Secret War in Vietnam by Green Beret John Stryker Meyer. His story, as introduced in these next few minutes, will give you a better insight to today's coming interview than I ever could. It was May 1968. We were triple volunteers. We had volunteered and graduated from the Army's Parachute Jump School in Fort Benning, Georgia. Made it through the qualification course at the Special Forces Training Camp in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And after attending the 5th Special Forces Group Airborne In-Country Training Program, we had volunteered to serve in MACV SOG's Command and Control. During Special Forces training at Fort Bragg, several of the Green Berets teaching various courses told us to avoid CNC because the duty was rough and the Special Forces casualties were high in the top-secret unit. During communications training, where we learned how to send and receive messages in Morse code, Sergeants Wagner and Russo and Sergeant First Class Paul Villarosa also advised that we avoid C&C. Villarosa was a living legend. He had served three tours in Vietnam with the Special Forces. His advice to us was to go to an A-camp for our first tour of duty in Vietnam. Check out C&C from afar before volunteering for the secret but deadly operation. Despite all the warnings, Rick Howard, John McIntyre, Rick Estes, Tony Harrell, Mark Gentry, Bob Garcia, Bobby D. Leathers, myself, and a few others volunteered to serve in CNC. I had been in training or in between training cycles since entering the Army on 1st December 1966. In May of 1968, we were finally shifting gears from being in a training mode to an operational mode. None of the rumors prepared us for what followed. We were about to quietly enter America's secret war in Vietnam. The deuce and a half drove us to the northern end of Da Nang, near the Da Nang Air Base, and deposited us in front of a nondescript building where CNC headquarters was located. After standing around in the Army tradition of hurry up and wait, a sergeant major told us to enter the building. As we settled into our chairs, some of us began to pull out pads or small notebooks, as we had done for more than a year in classroom situations. You won't need those, the sergeant major said. Put away all pens, pencils, and notebooks. This is a top-secret briefing. All of you have either obtained a top-secret clearance or will do so in the near future, or you wouldn't be here. The business-like sergeant major went on to explain that we were not allowed to discuss with anyone what was discussed inside that classroom. He asked Mike Bayard from Trenton, New Jersey, to hand out forms while he spoke. Bayard seemed like an old pro to us. He had been in-country three months and had run several joint missions with Navy SEALs as a communication specialist. Now that he was officially entering CNC, Mike Bayard was getting the same treatment as the rest of us. The sergeant major looked at the open door to the briefing room and ordered someone to shut it. Welcome to the Command and Control Detachment of the 5th Special Forces Group, Airborne, 1st Special Forces, United States Army Special Operations Augmentation, Studies and Observations Group, or simply CNC, the sergeant major said. Gentlemen, before you is a confidentiality agreement. This was a binding contract where all of us acknowledged that we would not discuss CNC with anyone outside of the Special Augmentation Group. You can't tell your girlfriend, your mother, no one. If anyone asked about our assignments, we would have simply said that we were with the 5th Special Forces Group in Vietnam. The agreement was binding for 20 years. If anyone violated this agreement, 
that individual could face federal prosecution, resulting in stiff fines and incarceration, and ruin any future government or security employment opportunities. We were prohibited from writing anything about the operation, forbidden from keeping diaries, taking photos, making drawings, or tape-recording notes of any sort. The sergeant major advised us that anyone who didn't want to sign the agreement could leave. No questions would be asked. Anyone who wanted out would be returned to the conventional special forces headquarters in Nha Trang. No one left the room. The sergeant major told everyone that CNC staff would read all mail, including all letters we wrote and received. When he said that our mailing address would be drawer 22, with an APO in San Francisco, Rick Howard knew it wasn't a regular Army mailing address. This was something different. Gentlemen, the sergeant major turned toward a generic map on the wall. The North Vietnamese Army controls these neutral countries and pointed to Cambodia and Laos, located to the west of the Republic of South Vietnam and, of course, North Vietnam. For several years, the North Vietnamese Army had moved soldiers, supplies, rockets, guns, and propagandists south into the eastern provinces of neutral Laos and Cambodia through an ever-increasing network of trails and roads called the Ho Chi Minh Trail Complex. The NVA had a division called the 559th, so named because the North Vietnamese government formed it in May of 1959 for the sole purpose of expanding the Ho Chi Minh Trail and moving supplies south. The NVA had 30,000 to 40,000 troops, conscripted laborers, and enslaved indigenous personnel in Laos alone. Once the supplies were catched, the NVA units would strike into South Vietnam from their sanctuaries when and where they wanted. When the units wished to withdraw from the battlefield, they did so, often retreating into Cambodia and Laos to regroup and resupply in preparation for the next attack, while conventional U.S. and South Vietnamese armed forces were forbidden to pursue them across the border. Green Beret A camps were built along the border to act as an early warning system, as well as to provide the local people with basic military training and to improve their living conditions. The efforts of the Green Berets and their indigenous troops in those A camps weren't enough. This was where C&C entered the picture. Platoon-sized elements called hatchet forces, or the smaller 4-12 to man reconnaissance teams, codenamed spike teams, went across the vents, as the border between the countries was known. Both penetrated deep into Laos and Cambodia to monitor, interdict, and report on the NVA forces along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Now listen up real close, the sergeant major said. When you go across the fence, you will carry no identification of any manner, shape, or form. That meant no identification papers, no dog tags, no diaries, no photos, no love letters, and certainly no green berets. Everyone would wear sterile fatigues with no company insignia, no name tags, no unit designators, no jump wings or combat infantryman badges. Why? Without giving anyone a chance to respond, he said that because Laos and Cambodia were neutral, the United States government could publicly proclaim that the U.S. respected that neutrality. Thus, if we were killed in Laos, Cambodia, or North Vietnam, the U.S. government would deny having anything to do with us. The United States government would explain that no Americans were stationed in Laos or Cambodia, which was technically accurate. The U.S. government had plausible deniability if we were captured or killed, and if captured, we were to speak a foreign language. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. 
Today we're taking you back to the Vietnam War to honor some heroes and their stories. These were the men who fought during the years of what many call the Secret War, the Special Operations War fought in Laos, North Vietnam, and Cambodia to monitor and harass the supply line of enemy combatants and material flooding into South Vietnam along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Officially, we weren't there. Unofficially, we were trying to win a war in the Republic of South Vietnam and using every tool we had at our disposal. The men who fought there fought against incredible odds. They got no love from the press because officially, they didn't exist. The odds against them at times were a thousand to one, but they were given a job to do and fought with incredible veracity. Their stories are legend. The ghost command they were assigned to was called the Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observation Group, MACVSOG, or SOG. Sounds innocent enough. They carried CAR 15s, knives, communications equipment for the purpose of monitoring enemy movement and numbers, and were constantly fighting to stay alive from hour to hour and day to day. Today, Veterans Day, November 11th, 2022, we're very proud to have with us retired Green Beret John Stryker Meyer, author of Across the Fence, The Secret War in Vietnam. John, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you, John. It's good to be here. I was hoping you could fill us in on your early life before you joined the Army and what finally prompted you to make that decision. Basically, I just grew up in Trenton, New Jersey. Dad was a milkman. My mom was a choir director, piano teacher. Went through Trenton public schools. After I graduated, went to Trenton State College. And after my second year, uh, the summer of 1966, I was working at Yosemite National uh, Park. And uh, my dad told me the uh, draft notice came in. And uh, I read the book, The Green Berets. And I said, whoa. By 1966, the war was cranking up. More Americans were being sent to Vietnam. And I said, if I go, I want to go with these guys if I can uh, qualify. So in December, I enlisted in the Army for three years. Uh, went to basic training at uh, Fort Dix, New Jersey. Advanced infantry training at Fort Gordon, Georgia. And during that time there, the Green Beret recruiters came through. So I took the battery of tests, written, physical, had to show that you could swim, run, etc. And then uh, past that, went to jump school for three weeks at uh, Fort Benning. And then when we were done there, went down to Fort Bragg for seven months, where we went through Special Forces training, graduated in December, where I earned my Green Beret. And then uh, after that, we had three months of uh, extra training before Vietnam in radio teletype. Landed in Vietnam at the end of April, had in-country training. At the end of the in-country training in the Trang, which was the 5th Special Forces Group headquarters, a little guy comes out and says, hey, we're looking for volunteers. And uh, it was for volunteers for MACVSOG. And we didn't know it, and they couldn't talk about it. But McIntyre and I and a bunch of other guys, we, we volunteered. Were there rumors and, going uh, around at that point about what you were volunteering for? We had a little scuttlebutt, but um, you know, nothing like anybody would say, hey, I served in CNC, which is command and control, saying, uh, you know, giving us the honest answer on what it was. Um, just, just rumors that it was dangerous missions. Who knows? Anyways, two days later, uh, we were up in Da Nang, had the briefing, 
It was a top secret briefing. And we had to sign NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, saying that we would not talk about it, could not talk about it, and if we did, we'd be prosecuted for talking about it for 20 years. And that was involved in the secret war across the fence in Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam. So we signed them, got the briefing, and a day later, we had the South Vietnamese Air Force flew us up to FOB-1 at Fubai. What kind of a flight was that? That must have that. been like walking into a different different world when you finally landed at FOB-1. Oh, clearly. Yeah, because, you know, all of our training, both in the States and in Vietnam, all the training we had with uh, helicopters, the majority of it was around the Yui, which was the helicopter that's recognized today and back then as the the helicopter of the war. And they had Chinooks, and we had Sky Cranes, and there were some experimental helicopters even that when we went through our training, we trained with those because you never knew what sort of helicopter would support you. So you had to know what its limitations were, how to enter it, exit it, because some, the blades were so low that uh, if you didn't bend down when you entered the helicopter, you could literally lose your head over that mistake. So we trained for it, but we never trained with the South Vietnamese Air Force, which um, after our top secret briefing, the next day we're out to Da Nang Air Base, and here's a CH-34 Sikorsky with a nine-cylinder radio engine in it that was the same kind of engine they used in B-17s during World War II. Mm-hmm. And we had no word about it. So <laughs> it had a door on the right side, one door in, and uh, it was ca- and then what we had was camouflage painted, which may look pretty cool. But again, we had never ha- had any training whatsoever. And the culture shock was, my God, all of a sudden our lives were in the hands of our allies here, literally. And our concern was short-lived. I mean, over time, they, and their code name was King Bees. And over time, they proved to be incredibly valorous, uh, fearless aviators that, uh, in our personal case, there's many Green Berets alive today thanks to their courage. You know, no matter who got on the helicopter, they always took good care of us. So in our case, um, in fact, just to back up for a second, when we landed at food by FOB1, a recon team got on and disappeared. Never heard from again. And there are two Americans, Glenn Lane and Robert Owen, who are still today amongst the 50 Green Berets that are listed as missing in action from the secret war in Southeast Asia, both in Laos and Cambodia and North Vietnam. And, uh, in between that, people like myself who served and, and came back, there were numerous times when the King B pilots uh, saved us, literally, our recon team or our hatchet force, and they always came in, whether it was a green, new rookie, or somebody who had been a veteran there for a long time. And they earned our respect because they came and got us. And... Uh, you know, it's just like, and we had the same thing with our, our team. Like when the Idaho got wiped out, we had a new team leader, Robert uh, J. Spider-Parks. 
he became the team leader. Don Wolken was the assistant, and then I was the uh, youngest and the greenest uh, American on the team. I was a radio operator, and uh, when they introduced me to the team, the Vietnamese team there took one look at me and turned to the interpreter and said, he's too <laughs> tall, his feet are too big, he looks stupid. <laughs> so over time, I had to earn earn his respect, but uh, it worked out, and, uh, and it was mutual with them because our South Vietnamese on the recon team, like Sal, he was our Vietnamese team leader, Hep was the interpreter, and then we had Phuc, Doti Quang, they were just incredible men in the field. They always ran point. They knew what was going on better in the jungle than I ever did. So we always relied heavily on them. So it was our experience was uh, unique and different from the majority of Americans that served in Vietnam, where they would view all Vietnamese as potential Viet Cong, which is the way you had to look at the guerrilla warfare that we were subject to at that time. But in my case, we you know we were in the same camp, lived with the Vietnamese, served with them, and we ran many missions with them. And as I said, during 68 and early 69, our primary transportation across the fence into Laos and Cambodia was the King Bees, the South Vietnamese Air Force, and they, they performed with great valor. Yeah, in, in your book, you do a good job of explaining that out of pure respect, you did call them the little people, but they weren't little in terms of heart. They weren't little in terms of courage. These guys were fighters. Amen to that. Yes, sir. And there's a lot of scenes in your book here, Across the Fence. In fact, this whole book, for all you listeners, this book, Across the Fence by John Meyer, is full of action. The, the book is incredible. It's, it's very, very hard to put down. There are... There are action scenes everywhere. You, from the moment you hit forward operations base one, FOB one, you were already involved in, uh, in a lot of the drama that was going on there. Uh, a strike team had been lost, uh, and uh, they were going to be sending out uh, a team to try and recover them. Tell me about what happened from that point on. Yeah, the, uh, the team that went out to recover them was Spike Team Oregon. And... Uh, Mike Tucker and George Sternberg were the team members, and they added a medic, uh, Steve Perry, who had been on Idaho and had been transferred to another team. So he knew uh, the Americans as well as the South Vietnamese that had been on the team. Um, and this is what we called a bright light mission. The bright light mission was one to go in to find or to help a team that was in trouble or to get down pilots. And uh, when we went in for a bright light mission, you carried maybe a canteen of water, no food, no rations, and you carried extra bullets, extra hand grenades, as well as bandages and body bags. So in this case, Oregon went in, they uh, went a slight distance off of the primary landing zone, the LZ, where Idaho was, uh, was infiltrated where they landed in Laos into the target. And they made contact and they went back to a bomb crater and they and and while they're in this bomb crater they had a long firefight on and off with the North Vietnamese army and everybody on the team was wounded. One American one of the South Vietnamese was killed. 
And during that combat, the uh, team uh, encountered American hand grenades and American weapons. And we, the everybody assumed that if they had encountered that, that Idaho had either been captured or wiped out. And they were able to uh, get out alive and uh, just um, come back. Sternberg literally had his boots, his jungle boots, blown off by a uh, hand grenade, American hand grenade. And uh, Perry, uh, during the initial blast, was paralyzed, and so he couldn't even walk. And they were able to get Steve out, get into the helicopter, and he recovered from that. It was some kind of a temporary uh, nerve damage he had. But uh, that's just the one day in SOG. We'll return to our interview with John Stryker Meyer across the vets, the secret war in Vietnam, right after these sponsor messages. It's incredible messages. what you guys went through back in those times. It's so much different now, than back how to they send them out today. You guys had no armor, no helmets. Uh, you were well armed. You had a lot of ammunition. But in terms of what you went into the field with, other than some air backup, if the weather was clear, you had no artillery to call in, no reinforcements to call in. You guys were dropped in, in areas where there were anywhere from 1,000 to 5,000 NVA who couldn't wait to get their hands on you. And you, you were basically on a mission with, what, maybe two, or two Green Berets and three, four, five South Vietnamese uh, Special Forces. I mean, this was dangerous, dangerous stuff. You had a, you had a high rate of uh, mortality, did you not? Uh, yes, sir. The casualty rating for SOG during the eight-year secret war turned out to to be exceed 100%. And the way you see the 100% is you have people that are wounded, like uh, Bob Howard. He ran missions out of Contum FOB2. He received eight Purple Hearts. He was put in for 11. And he was a, a recipient of the Medal of Honor for a military action in Laos in 1968. Just a little sidebar on that. On his Medal of Honor citation, it said for heroic valor in South Vietnam. Even his official award for the Medal of Honor didn't say where he officially earned it, which was Laos. Describe, if you will, mission responsibilities for these strike teams. What was your responsibility going in there? What were your goals in terms of what you needed to accomplish? And how did you do it? They had various missions. Because remember, by 1968, the secret war had been going on for four years. And during that time, the North Vietnamese Army had built up troops, and they were coming down, coming down what we called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. They came from North Vietnam. They brought in the supplies, manpower, equipment, spies, couriers. And our job was to see what they were doing because our government had entered, as you read earlier, entered that agreement where we would send no combat troops to Laos or Cambodia. And the communists agreed to do the same thing, but of course they're communists, they lie about anything. Look at today, was, you know, you'll see classic examples everywhere. You can't believe a word from a communist now. They had, by 68, they had 25 to 30,000 troops in Laos. Cambodia had anywhere from 50 to 100,000. They would come across the border, attack a Green Beret camp, attack our allies, 
and then they would go back to their sanctuaries and lick their wounds to come back and attack us again. So our job was to go in and see what they're up to, try to uh, forewarn any pending attacks. So then specifically to your question, we would have missions that would be an area reconnaissance where we would go in strictly to see what was going on in that area. There could be a point reconnaissance where we would go in for a specific mission. For example, the NBA had fuel lines. So our one mission would be to go in and find the fuel line and destroy it. Other missions include the bomb damage assessments. After a B-52 bomb mission, uh, we would go in and assess what the damage was. Again, those were very hairy missions. We also did wiretaps, POW snatches, and sometimes we'd do trail watches where we would go in to observe a trail and then coordinate Air Force assets to destroy anything that is coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Trucks, tanks, bulldozers, try to find, if we would find an enemy cachet or an enemy uh, transit billets or uh, things like that, blow them up. That would be our mission against them. You guys were installing sound sensors, weren't you, uh, on trees and whatnot? Uh, to yes, could detect uh, the sounds uh, of these guys talking as they went by? Well, the sound sensors in the trees were the ones the Air Force dropped from the air with parachutes, as okay. I understand it. Um, we did. Uh, my first two missions with uh, Recon Team Idaho was putting in Air Force sensors where the first one was put in the Asheville Valley, and it had a central component, and then it had two coaxial cables that ran out from it. So you had the main, like basically a computer with an antenna on it. Then it had the coaxial cables that went out, all had to be buried. And at the end of each cable was another antenna, small. And so anything anything that came by those, those that computer set up there, um, monitor you could tell whether it was a human an animal truck or bulldozer and those were used to monitor the ho chi minh trail we put in one in the asphalt valley and then september of 68 we put one up outside of um, Quezon, the historic battle site where the marines and special forces had an fob3 based there at that time and we put sensors in there so those were specifically Air Force sensors. I'm familiar with those. I never worked with the ones that you mentioned that were in the trees, although I've talked to men that have seen them, and sometimes they would go in to have to retrieve some. And, of course, the enemy sometimes would recover those, and they would do things on their own, just trying to uh, confuse the Americans that are listening to them. What was your first mission across the fence? Describe that for us. The very first one was the uh, was the putting in that Air Force sensor. It was August 1969, and mm -hmm. then we put it in. We expected to get a lot of uh, gunfire from uh, an enemy contact, but we never did. We went in, put the sensors in, and we left, and uh, without any enemy contact to speak of. And uh, even we did a second one because we went in, did it. It took a few hours to. By the time you dug the holes, the three holes for each of the separate units, 
and then buried the coaxial cable. It took a while, but again, we went in, did it, and left without any major contact uh, with the North Vietnamese Army or any Viet Cong or Passat Lao. And then we were surprised. I mean, because the Asaw Valley was the major area infiltration into northern part of South Vietnam. Supplies would come south, then they'd get on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and then there'd be trail off trails from that that would as you headed south that would come into South Vietnam. And we had three Green Beret camps that had been stationed, built in the Ashaw Valley, and the NVA had literally overrun them all by the end of nineteen sixty six. They were just run out. I mean at a great cost. But they were serious. That's what they wanted. That's what they kept their supply routes. And we lost teams in the Air Force um, and Army air assets, lost good men and equipment in there, uh, trying to slow down the NVA heading south. So I guess it was within two days of when you first arrived at, at Forward Operations Base 1, FOB 1, that uh, you were told about the disappearance of FT Idaho. What did that do to morale? Well, it, 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 it put a big damper on it. But, um, and again... In my case, it was startling because here's a recon team that got on the helicopter and went on a mission and never came back. So yep. uh, Spider Parks had been on that team. He had been promoted to a new team, and Glenn Lane was continuing to serve on as the 1-0 team leader. And um, so Spider had the experience. He knew the little people uh, on the team, the South Vietnamese, and then they went out and recruited they got myself and Don Wolken on the team, and then they we hired five more, five or six South Vietnamese that came in, and then we began training up the team from there. So, yes, that was a, a morale factor. And earlier that month, we had another team that had been wiped out, a team, the Spike Team Alaska. The team had been on the ground for a few days. When it was wiped out, everybody was killed except the team leader, whose name is John Allen. And John somehow survived. He escaped and evaded for two or three days. And then a helicopter spotted him in the Ashaw Valley, and they were able to pick him up. When John was in FOB-1, when we landed there, and none of us spoke to him because we were just green, green berets. And unless John had spoken to us, we would not say anything because we knew the horrific experience he had been through. But to John's credit, he stayed in the Army, served over 20 years, and was highly respected uh, for his time of service. But uh, and back in March and in April, other teams had been wounded or wiped out or disappeared. And we had to recover the bodies. Sometimes you couldn't recover them, as with Spike Team Idaho from May of 68. That was just a part of the price of doing business. Now you mentioned the Asaw Valley a moment ago. I'm going to read an excerpt from, uh, from page 111 here that you've got. Saturday morning, October 5th, there was no laughing when the Vietnamese piloted King Bees flew west across South Vietnam from Phu Bai near the China Sea to the Asaw Valley into the target area. The weather was clear in the Fubai, but cloudy over the AO. During that flight, Black, and that's uh, Lynn Black Jr., who was a compatriot of yours, 
Yes, sir. Black remembered how the Black remembered how the launch commander had said this mission would be a cakewalk. Spider and Watkins, however, knew that it was a tough target where the NVA had previously run out FOB-1 teams and there were no new landing zones for the team insertion. For this target, Watkins was the cubby rider in the Air Force O-2 Cessna, piloted by Captain Hartness. ST Alabama's insertion started smoothly as the first King B landed quickly with the 1-0, 1-1, and three Vietnamese team members quickly exiting the aircraft. As Black's King B spiraled downward toward the LZ, he observed an NVA flag planted atop a nearby knoll. From his days in the 173rd Airborne Brigade, Black knew that the presence of an NVA flag meant that there was at least a regiment of NVA soldiers in the area. The knoll was surrounded by jungle. On the west side, there was a thousand-foot drop to the valley floor below. The numbers didn't compute for Black. Approximately 3,000 NVA against nine ST Alabama men. Several AK-47s opened fire before the King Bee's wheels touched down. Nevertheless, Black and the remaining three Vietnamese ST Alabama team members exited the H-34. As the King Bee lifted off, the NVA gunfire increased significantly, and moments later, the laboring Sikorsky H-34 crashed. Although this was Black's first SOG mission into prairie fire, he knew the odds were stacked against ST Alabama. He and Cowboy, and we're going to get to him in a minute, Cowboy Doan, argued vigorously for an immediate extraction. The team had been compromised. The element of surprise was gone. The other American, who had not gone through the Special Forces qualification courses at Fort Bragg, remained silent. No, said the new 1-0. I'm an American. No slant-eyed SOB is going to run me off. Watkins offered the 1-0 a chance to extract. The offer was declined. The team was going to continue. The team leader ordered the point man to walk down a well-traveled trail away from the LZ into the jungle. Black, Cowboy, and the point man, Ho, argued against heading down that trail. The first rule of recon was never to use the trails, especially well-traveled ones. The 1-0 pulled rank and ordered the team to move down the trail, with Ho leading the way and the elder Green Beret following a short distance behind him. The trail wound into the jungle and curved to the left. ST Alabama moved cautiously. As the team went down the trail, it moved parallel to a small rise on its right that was about 10 to 20 feet above the team. On it, an NVA colonel had quickly assembled a force of 50 NVA soldiers who set up a classic L-shaped ambush. The quiet of the early morning jungle was shattered when the NVA troops opened fire with their AK-47s and SKS rifles. The AK rounds ripped into the point man's chest and face. The fatal impact of those rounds lifted the canteen covers around his waist, appearing to keep his body suspended in the air. What had been a human body milliseconds earlier was being chewed into an amorphous form that hit the ground with a sickening thud. Arterial blood spurted high into the air. Three rounds slammed into the one zero's head, blowing off the right side of his face, killing him instantly. Nothing in the months of pulling garbage detail could prepare ST Alabama for the grisly horror unfolding at that moment. The one one buried his face in the dirt and started praying. There's no time for training out there. Can you explain what happened after that? Well, after the ambush, um, the team moved away from the site of the ambush, but they were able to get a defensive position where they had a little bit of high ground. And the NBA launched several wave attacks. I mean, a wave of humans came to the team 
the team, through the use of Claymore mines and their weapons, were able to repulse them. After a few wave attacks, they began stacking up dead bodies of enemy soldiers, and then they hid behind the dead bodies when the next wave attack came. And this, they had fire a series of firefights throughout the day. They directed tactical air, which would be uh, F-4 Phantom Jets. They had SPAD A-1 Sky Raiders that came in and in close air support. And then, of course, helicopter gunships, both Scarface from uh, HML-367 of the Marine Corps, as well as the muskets from the 176 uh, out of the AmeriCal Division. And they, without that support, the team would have been wiped out. But the Lynn Black took over the team, worked closely with his counterparts, and they were able to escape and evade. Um, at one point, uh, Lynn was knocked unconscious by a concussion grenade, which literally the knocked him down. It destroyed his car 15, tore his clothing, inflicted some wounds, and he was able to recover from that and could still continue to lead the team eventually to an extraction at the end of the day by a Jolly Green Giant, an HH-3, that came in hovered in the jungle for over 20 minutes until Lin and his uh, Doti Kwong were able to get the other remainders of the remaining members of the team to the helicopter. And as they were moving to the helicopter, they found a crew member, a pilot and a PJ, an Air Force pararescue man who has survived an earlier crash where they lost two service members when they were killed trying to rescue Spike Team out of Bannon. They were able to get him out. And the interesting sidebar on that, 25 years later or so, the U.S. government went back trying to find the body of the team leader. And they were not able to do so. But Lynn Black had worked with the government, and he got a phone call from the NVA officer that ambushed the team that day. And in speaking to him, they talked, they were comparing some notes, you know, and, and at the end of the conversation, Lynn said, you know, that was a bad day for us. You know, your, your soldiers killed three of our team members. And they had gone in with a nine-man team, came home with six. Everybody was wounded. And that includes a cowboy, uh, Khan, who was just an extraordinary soldier. Um, and the NBA soldier goes, officer goes, well, you know, we had a bad day too. He said, um, you know, that day between you, the recon team, and the air assets, they inflicted 90% casualties on our unit. And Lynn goes, yeah, I saw the flag there. I assumed that was an NBA battalion. He said, no, it was the NBA division of approximately 10,000 men. And you, you and the Air Force and the other support elements inflicted you know, casualties on 90% of our unit that day. And then they got talking a little further, and the officer asked Lincoln, hey, um, I was there, you know, I was the commanding officer of the 50 North Vietnamese Army soldiers that ambushed your team. 
said, who was the guy with the radio on his back? Because when the ambush was triggered, one guy stood up, and it was Lynn Black with the radio. All the other team members went to the ground to return gunfire. And Lynn goes, well, sir, that was me. He goes, you shot me three times. And uh, <laughs> Lynn was mm. surprised with that. And then the guy says, yeah, the worst thing about it was after you shot me three times, I laid on the ground watching you and the others kill my men. I could do nothing. So that was one of those truly legendary stories out of Saad from the eight-year secret war. Cowboy Doan was the was the guy who led me to you, his story. I was doing stories of uh, heroes of Vietnam, and his name came up, and then that led me to your to your book, Across the Fence, and to uh, how he was involved with you guys. Could you give us a little bit on uh, on how long he served and what happened to him? Yeah. Um, the good news is he's still alive today. He lives in San Jose, and mm-hmm. um, his family... He started. He was born in North Vietnam, but in 1954, after the a battle of Dien Bien Phu, when the North Vietnamese officially threw the French out of South Vietnam, they defeated them and they left. And there were thousands of families, and there was an 18-month period of time from May of 54 for 18 months where anybody in the north could go south, anybody from the south could go north. Well, nobody that I know of in the south went north. Nobody wanted to live under communism. However, Mm -hmm. thousands of families came south. One of them was Khan's family. They came south, they went to school, was educated, learned how to speak English, and became an interpreter on a SOG recon team and eventually landed with um, Spike Team Alabama for that historic mission on October 5th, 1968, again in the Ashaw Valley. And uh, Cowboy ran missions up until 70 or 71 when he was wounded and then eventually landed a job as an interpreter. When our American Secret War ended, he had another job and then when South Vietnam fell to the communists, the official date was April 30th, 1975, when most people, he tried to get out of the country, couldn't. So in order to survive, he walked north because any, any of the enemy soldiers coming south, seeing somebody walking north, just assumed that they would be on their side. When, in fact, had they known his identity, they would have killed him in a New York City second. But he was able to survive, eventually came to the States, had a job, lives in San Jose now, and he's on dialysis every day. But he's a real fighter who still fights to stay alive every day. Just uh, one of our American heroes. In fact, if anybody listens to Jocko Willink, Jocko Willink podcast member two five eight was an interview with Jocko where you get a real sense of who he was. It's a great interview. There's a lot of names of the South Vietnamese guys who fought with you. Three names seem to pop up all the time. I'm hoping you can kind of fill our listeners in on, on who they were and how they uh, and how they worked with you. If I'm saying it right, 
It was Sal, Hep, and Folk. Is that right? Yes, sir. They're on uh, Idaho. Sal was our yep. Vietnamese team leader, our counterpart. Hep was an interpreter. Hep spoke four languages, had been educated at French schools. And Fook was another one of our uh, young men who his family had come south during that period of time when anybody who wanted to come south could. And after Idaho got wiped out, as I said, Spider Parks became the team leader. Don Wolkin was the assistant team leader. I was the radio operator. And when they introduced me to the team, Sal turned to Hep and said, you know, Meyer, he's, he's too tall, his feet look too big, and he looks stupid. <laughs> <laughs> now, Hep wouldn't tell me that. He didn't tell me that until seven or eight months later. I kept trying to ask him, what did Sal say that day? Because Hep laughed, but he never told me because he didn't want to hurt my feelings, you know. But yeah. uh, eventually uh, we worked together, and, of course, uh, I Spider spoke highly of Sal and Hep and Fook, and so I knew that they were good to go when we got on the team. And over time, uh, I, I earned their respect enough where um, – uh, we had a great team. We ran many missions. And I was on a team from May until the end of April of 69. Uh, Went home, was assigned a 10th group for five months up at uh, uh, Fort Devens, Massachusetts. And then I went back, returned to Idaho at the end of October of 69. And I stayed on the team through till April of 1970. Then I came back and got out of the Army. Describe the time that folks saved your life. Well, there was, it was a major uh, firefight that we had um, on October 7th of 68. We had been in the target. We got inserted on the 6th. We had trackers. We were trying to lose the trackers. The next day we had trackers again, and we ended up on a small knoll at the, on a hilltop surrounded by jungle vegetation, but we had a knoll with, a, with some opening to it. And the enemy attacked us time and again. And during one of those moments, when I was shooting at enemy coming out of the jungle, I thought Fook was standing behind me in open fire and was shooting the same way I was. And the gunfire from his weapon, really, I couldn't hear anything for a few minutes because of the rounds. And I didn't realize it when we got back, we got out of that mission safely. The next day, it was in the team room, and and I mentioned to Hep, I said, hey, ask Fook, why was he shooting over my shoulder? And Fook goes, you knucklehead, I wasn't shooting over your shoulder. Coming up the hill to your right, which you didn't see, were NVA, and they're aiming their AK-47s at you. And Fook dispersed them, killed them all thus saving my life and of course it's you know when you're in the middle of a firefight sometimes men standing side by side will have completely different stories so here's a classic example Fook was in two or three feet of me i'm assuming he's with me shooting to the north when in fact he was shooting to the east and uh saved my life yeah he was watching your back right or at least another sure. angle oh yeah I'm going to read a paragraph about Captain Tin, and I'd like you to fill in on that when, when I'm done. It's a short one. 
At some point during the craziness, I looked up at the pilot of the King Bee, Captain Tin. He was above all the madness on the ground, completely calm and collected, while his aircraft took numerous hits from enemy rounds. What made his demeanor all the more extraordinary was how it contrasted with our adrenaline-hyped, frantic behavior on the ground. We had been fighting for hours. We were dirty. We were sweaty. We were exhausted. And there sat Captain Tin, cool as a Rocky Mountain breeze, giving the impression that it was just another milk run. It was as though he said, No sweat, boys. I've got all day. You just take your time. The stewardess will break out the beverages after you've secured in your seats. <laughs> Looking at Captain Tin for that brief moment generated a mental image I'd carry with me forever. Frankly, I never understood how one man could be so steady under so much enemy fire and keep the chopper hovering. Quite a story. Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, anybody, for anybody who's never been in a helicopter or tried to pile on one, the controls of, a, of the helicopter are so sensitive that essentially you basically think about where you want the helicopter to go. And um, it, it, it goes there. Because if you move, it's not like you see the World War II movies where guys are in, hill, or in aircraft and they're pulling on the steering wheel or something else to change the direction of the aircraft. Nothing like that with a helicopter. They have the cyclic and then the long side that there's another control where they control the amount of fuel and how fast the blades go and the pitch of the blades. And it was just amazing to me. It always was and it's to this day. The South Vietnamese and any helicopter pilot that we worked with from other units, how they could be so calm, stay on those controls, and not and to, to maintain a hover in a helicopter is no easy task. It takes training, weeks of training, and can Captain Tim that day hung there for 10 minutes waiting for us to get to him. And he finally got the team on board. And when we did and we extracted, we were down to, I was down to my last magazine, my last hand grenade. And we lifted off, put the rounds out, my last hand grenade out. And uh, we saw um, Captain Tim uh, one or two days later. And he said that that helicopter had 48 bullet holes in it. And somehow they all went through the helicopter with nobody getting wounded. It's just Incredible. amazing. Yeah. Yes. And then that was also, you know, talking about working with Sal was after we got aboard the helicopter and we're leaving. I looked at Sal. Sal gave me a nod of his head, which was like, good work. And that was the moment that I always cherish between Sal and I, because that was where he gave me that nod. And I clearly had earned his respect at that, at that moment in time. You were in the action over there for about, was it 18 months, 19 months? Yeah, figure 18 months, because we had a little bit of time with the training first. So I had, uh, I was on Idaho from, um, May of 68 until the end of April 69. And then I returned in October of 69 through April of 1970. That I came back to the States and got out of the Army. What was the transition like for you? You had come out of a pretty, uh, pretty tense situation over there in terms of the adrenaline and, and how you had to be ready and the kind of situations you faced. What was it like coming back and, 
and getting back into civilian life? Well, you know, there, there's mixed reactions, but the overall, the history of our country was the soldiers, that whole line about soldiers being farmers and they would, uh, we worked their plowshares and their weapons. Yeah, put down their plowshares, yep. Yeah, so by day they were farmers, by night. And um, when the war was over, they went back to farming. And that happened through all of our wars, where um, we would go to, to war, and, for, and our history has been rich with amazing victories over, the, over time. And, uh, of course, people forget, too, that over ever since the Revolutionary War, we've had 1.1 million Americans who have been killed in action, and millions more that have been wounded in action. And uh, so in my case, I was, same thing. I was like, okay, I've served like our predecessors. It's time to go home. I was glad to be home, glad to be back in the States. And uh, went back to school, got a part-time job driving school buses to help pay for gas and stuff, and stepped down to, to settle in. And it was not happy to see the anti-war protests going on and other things mm -hmm. like that. They even had some riots in Trenton that were going on. And it was just uh, on selling, but on the overall, it was just good to be home. You know, I think that uh, today there should be like either mandatory service of some kind, either in the military or the Peace Corps, because this way people would appreciate our country more particularly after they've been to a foreign country. I don't care. Any country in the world, there's nothing like coming home to America. I do want to ask you in the right way about uh, how you're involved today with veterans and also about your, the other books that you've written. I've written three books altogether. Uh, Across the Fence was the first, On the Ground, The Secret War in Vietnam. That was my second. And there was more stories in there, including stories where, again, King B pilots like Captain On, who uh, Captain On A N. The first story in on the ground was a recon team that had been on the ground. And they were doing a night surveillance of a trail, where several hours they watched soldiers, tanks, bulldozers, trucks loaded with troops and supplies moving south. Near the end of that, right, maybe an hour or two before sunrise. One of the brew team members had somebody come up and touch him on the arm and say, it's your turn for guard duty. It was an enemy soldier who came up to the team member of that team, which was Spike Team Lion. And the team leader was Pat Watkins. Well, needless to say, when the North Vietnamese soldier left, he went and told Pat Watkins what had happened. They moved out. They were in contact all day and at the end. Captain On came in and saved that recon team, picked them up. He literally hovered into a bomb crater so the team could get in. And then as he left, the team was on board, and they had the duck and dodge uh, anti-aircraft fire. And so that's the uh, the first story in, in, uh, on the ground. The third book was The Saw Chronicles, Volume 1. Hope to begin okay. working on volume two in January. And there the featured story was Operation Tailwind, where we had um, 16 Green Berets and 120 indigenous troops 
went into layoffs on one of the most successful missions during the eight-year Siku War. They went in to take the pressure off of the CIA, which was involved in a major engagement. And after that uh, mission, the they handed out 32 Purple Hearts to the 16 Green Berets that had been on that mission. And mm. the medic was Gary Mike Rose, who earned the Medal of Honor, which was awarded to him October 23rd, 2017, at the White House by then-President Donald Trump. And, wow. uh, yes, sir. So I've also had the privilege of being interviewed by Jocko Willink. He's done a series, Jocko Willink podcast. The first one I did with him was uh, Jocko Willink podcast number 180. And we mentioned the one earlier with uh, Cowboy. And then Jocko has been kind enough to support and bankroll SOG cast, where I'm interviewing SOG members. We now have done 32 interviews, and they've posted 29 on Spotify and Apple audio podcasts, and they've posted seven on YouTube so far. Those are available, and that's what we've been working on the last few years because Jocko has been very supportive of that. Uh, We've had a great deal of support. The first one that went up on YouTube now has over 190,000 views. Before, um, I always was involved in a few nonprofits that helped veterans back in Oceanside, California. And then 2008, until I moved to Tennessee in 2020, I worked at a couple of nonprofits to help veterans get affordable housing and then other programs with veterans. And then when I moved to to, uh, Tennessee, my direct involvement in most of those programs uh, ended. But uh, today I'm still working with the, um, and supporting like Special Forces Charitable Trust, the Green Beret Foundation. And we're working closely with um, the 5th Special Forces Group and a couple other groups, the third special forces group to support them. And we have this intergenerational relationship where today's Green Berets appreciate what we did and uh, and like myself, a veteran, to see them, what they're doing today, what their families are doing, what they go through. We support them any way we can. Fantastic. I know you probably received a mountain of thanks from veterans who uh, served in Vietnam in terms of your being able to get the word out. And uh, especially unique is the fact that you're getting the word about out about the actions of the Special Service Forces uh, in Vietnam, which is something I think a lot of people didn't know about. And I know that, uh, that you, uh, others like you, they've done the nation a real honor by getting the names of these people out there. And I know from previous conversations with you, you guys don't think of yourselves as heroes. I understand that. It's the people that uh, you left behind over there, or the people that uh, that didn't make it. Um, yes, sir. Those were the heroes in your guys' minds, and I get that, okay? But I know that uh, your service and the service of all you guys uh, who fought in Vietnam and in other battles around the world, from all our hearts as Americans, we're proud of you, and you're all heroes to us. Well, thank you. And then the, the final, the most uh, you know, gut-wrenching issue for uh, for special forces, particularly the men that served in SAW, 
is like the numbers we mentioned earlier very quickly, which was to this day, there are 50 Green Berets from the Secret War who are still listed as missing in action in Laos and Cambodia. And there's 83 aviators from the Marine Corps, Army, Air Force that died and went missing in action supporting our teams on the ground. So as of today, Veterans Day 2022, there are still 1,581 Americans that are still listed as missing in action, not accounted for, and uh, in Southeast Asia. That's from Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, a couple in Thailand, a couple in China. And our government, the DPAA, the Defense Department, POWMIA, accounting agency, is very disappointing. They're not putting the proper emphasis on finding, locating, identifying, and bringing home the Americans that are still there. There's uh, one nonprofit, the National League of POW-MIA Families. They're based in uh, Arlington, Virginia, and they support us. They've been involved for 50 years in, in the accounting and in trying to encourage our government and work with the governments of Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia to cooperate. And today we have an unprecedented level of spirit of cooperation from Vietnam, thanks to the efforts from the league over the years and DIA, the defense intelligence agency, which works behind the scenes quietly, but their people are there to this day trying to get more information on cases. And then we got to get the, of course, COVID hit hurt the mission but um, they're not putting the emphasis on this that any Vietnam vet, particularly the Green Berets and the airmen that served in the Secret War, want today. We just don't see it. It's not as strong as it used to be. They give us lip service, but no results. And uh, or very little result. I can't say no results, but little. We wish there were more. So um, pray for the families of those 1,581, particularly our 50 Green Berets and the 83 Airmen that we documented who died supporting us. John, thank you so much. John Stryker Meyer for Across the Fence, The Secret War in Vietnam. Fantastic book. I recommend it to all you listeners. Uh, it's a terrific read and it's a wonderful uh, history. And I think uh, anybody who's under, anybody who wants to understand more about our involvement over there and what happened to those men and how brave they were, uh, this is the book to get. John, thank you so much. Uh, thank I've enjoyed you, John. speaking with you. Thank you. And the people, people go to my website, uh, sawchronicles.com, where all those uh, other interviews will be posted. And once, once you post this one, I'll post it on my website okay. also. But thank you very much. Airborne.
Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.